0: Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 31. This is the un-undisputed. This is everything I cannot share with you during the go for the throat two and a half hour debate show that is undisputed. In episode 31, I am about to tell you how Kevin Durant and Baker Mayfield just got humbled, and how now both of them are positioned to have the best year of their career. I'll tell you about a recent road rage incident here in LA that I was lucky to survive. I'll tell you how so many athletes and so many LeBron lovers are so wrong when they tell me repeatedly, day after day after day, you don't know because you didn't play, baloney. I'll also answer some of your questions about my guilty pleasure, I'll disclose that, my favorite sports conspiracy theory, and also a question on how we decide which games we debate each NFL Monday, here they come. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. KD stays, Baker starts. Biggest news this week swirled around Kevin Durant and Baker Mayfield, two of quote unquote, my guys, who now have one thing and only one thing, in common, they both just got all time humbled. As much as I love me some KD and Baker as players, for very different reasons, I find both of them pretty hard to like off the court and off the field. KD, as I always say, is the thinnest skin superstar I have ever uh, closely observed. I mean, this is Kevin Durant, best player on the planet. This man has had multiple burner accounts on Twitter so he could secretly defend himself against nobodies. And Baker was pretty much a nobody, a literally little man who became a very big man in Cleveland after he got drafted number one overall and he started doing these relentless national TV commercials for Progressive, and his head swelled to the size of the Brown Stadium, Baker's house, as the commercials said. And Baker Mayfield, for me, became insufferably full of himself, snarky, condescending, before he'd really proven anything of consequence on the football field. But now like KD, Baker has been humbled. Best thing that could happen to both of them. And by the way, I now believe both are perfectly positioned to have a career season this season. First, let's talk about Kevin Durant. Nets owner Joe Sy just called Kevin Durant's bluff twice just stood up to seven-foot-tall Kevin Durant and twice told him, no, sorry, you're not going to demand or ultimatum your way right out of Brooklyn. You haven't, Kevin, even started the fourth year, I'm sorry, the four-year contract that you just signed. Starts on opening night. So Josiah said to Kevin, whether you like it or not, I'm going to... Hold your feet to this fire and no, and I'm not going to fire either Sean Marks or Steve Nash as you requested or demanded. No, you're going to work with them and you're going to make up with Kyrie and you and Kyrie and Ben Simmons are going to win a championship this coming season for the Brooklyn Nets. And to all that, I say, go, Joe, go. Not only did Joe Sy save the Brooklyn Nets, save them from having to start over with a haul of draft picks and two or three players who aren't remotely Kevin Durant, but Joe Sy helped save the NBA, at least in my point of view. Nobody that I know of, not my friends anyway, want to see superstars quit their way out of one situation and pull off forcing their teams to trade them to whatever destination they prefer. I'm talking about James Harden twice. I'm talking about Ben Simmons. I'm talking about Anthony Davis. It's just a bad look for the NBA. It's bad for business. It's just bad for a league that I thought was starting to rival the National Football League. In popularity, not anymore. Not when it started to appear that the superstars now run the NBA and get whatever they want, whenever they want it. Contracts be damned. But Joe Sy, the Nets owner, made Kevin Durant look foolish. Just as I said from the start that he would pull off. And by the way, I do not buy that nobody made much of an offer for Kevin Durant because he's become such a problem child. I don't buy that for a second. He's Kevin Bleepin Durant. What went unreported, because the best reporters aren't exactly on conference calls with Joe Tsai and Sean Marks and other teams, I, I believe there are bombshell offers made for Kevin bleepin Durant, who's still the best player on the planet, And I believe, as I predicted on Undisputed, I believe from the start, Joe Psy made up his mind, I'm not gonna cave in. I don't care what they offer for Kevin. I'll listen just to placate him, just to pat him on the head. But he's going nowhere. So early on in this saga, soon after Kevin Durant demanded, as you remember, He's going to be traded to either Phoenix or Miami. I said on Undisputed. Then I tweeted that Joe should stand up to Kevin and hold his feet to that contractual fire. And KD's brother soon tweeted at me, hell with that and hell with you. Tweeted KD's brother at me. No, no. Josiah said, hell with Phoenix and hell with Miami and hell with Boston, hell with Memphis, hell with anyone who reportedly was interested in Kevin Durant, any place else Kevin wanted to go. Kevin is going to be a Brooklyn Net, like it or not. And here's the point. I believe Kevin will like it. Heck, I believe he will soon come to love it. I believe Kevin will wake up and grow up and realize he already was in the best place that he could be on a team that I now believe should once again be favored to win it all, just the way it was just a year ago going into last basketball season. It was favored. Now it's the sixth favorite. And I don't understand that because I think the Nets could be even better next year. Obviously, that hinges upon Ben Simmons' physical and mental health, off back surgery, off the demons at the late-game free-throw line that plagued him in his last days in Philly. Ben Simmons was first-team all-defense the last two years that we saw him play. He had made two straight all-star teams. He was the rookie of the year. He was just what the doctor ordered for this nets team but Let, let's just say as a defender six foot ten long can defend the point guard through the center position i thought they added another very good perimeter defender royce o'neill another weapon tj warren they still have seth curry and patty mills joe harris and cam thomas so many snipers nick claxton seven feet long Maybe a little light in the britches, but he can still defend the paint. This team's loaded. So I believe it's time for Kevin, as in Durant, to wake up and grow up and become the leader that Josiah wants him to become. He's always been more follower than leader. He's always just wanted to hoop, to ball, to play basketball, period, end of story. I believe Josiah sold Kevin Durant on becoming an adult, the leader this team hasn't had. I believe this has been cathartic for Kevin, for Kyrie, for Sean Marks, for Steve Nash, for everybody involved. And yet I do hark back to a theory from my old friend, Tom House. Theory he has about professional athletes. You might know of Tom House because he is the throwing guru who still teaches Tom Brady. He's taught many of the best quarterbacks. Tom House pitched for the Atlanta Braves once upon a time. House has long told me that most pro athletes of any magnitude suffer from what he calls suspended adolescence the good ones are so spoiled all the way up the ladder that they're allowed to remain children even when they're 30 something with 30 something million in the bank. By the way, sports media agent I used to know always refused to represent any X-Star athletes who wanted to get into the media business because They were just impossible to deal with. And I always appreciated that because I know the feeling. Not when it comes to Shannon Sharp, who's incredibly dedicated to the process of debate television, but I have dealt with so many pro athletes who suffered so mightily from suspended adolescence. I believe that Kevin Durant just got a little easier to deal with. Somebody finally said no to Kevin Durant. And it did not surprise me at all that Kevin appears to have made up now with Kyrie. Clearly, the reason KD demanded that trade was because he thought that his best friend in the world, the guy he followed to Brooklyn, had betrayed him, wrecked the team psychologically by not getting vaccinated, which is exactly what Kyrie did, and. In- did to Kevin and his teammates. It's why James Harden quit his way out of Brooklyn. It all started with Kyrie not wanting, for, for whatever reason, to get vaccinated, not being allowed to play home games. But think about this. Draymond Green once called Kevin Durant a bitch in a heated argument on the bench when obviously Kevin was a Golden State Warrior That was a reason that KD left Golden State. Next thing I knew, KD and Draymond were at the Olympics and they were besties. They're hugging it up. Kevin's the first guest on Draymond's podcast. And I'm thinking, what? It's suspended adolescence at work. It's children being children. Hey, you call me a bitch, we are done. But kids will be kids. It didn't surprise me a bit that Trey Young posted pictures recently. Kevin, Kyrie on the same court together playing pickup basketball on opposite teams at a high school out here in Los Angeles. Children get over things quickly. Now, what, what were we mad about? I don't remember. They don't remember. I do believe Kevin Durant is becoming an adult. He'll be the voice of reason in that Nets locker room. I think he was subconsciously looking for somebody to stand up to him, an authority figure, maybe even a father figure. Josiah did that. I think Kevin Durant is poised for a monster year
1: Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, twenty four. See participating retailer for details.
0: He got his comeuppance thanks to something that has never ever happened in the history of the National Football League: a twenty five year old top three quarterback hit the market. Never happened before. All of a sudden, Deshaun Watson was available. And in this case, the Houston Texans weren't saying no. They were welcoming any and all trade offers. They were ready to trade them for the right draft haul. And you have to wonder, was it because Houston knew full well about Deshaun's deep background that we didn't know about at that point? about the Deshaun who the Judge Sue L. Robinson concluded was predatory in his behavior. That Deshaun, maybe they were, maybe they said enough is enough and they were ready to cut that cord. Now, reportedly the Browns wanted an adult at quarterback. I'm not sure Deshaun qualifies, but. They obviously did not think that Baker Mayfield did. So they plunged on Deshaun and Baker's pride took a long plunge into the depths of, dare I say, humility. He was humbled, but then Baker shocked me pleasantly. I love the move he made. He could have waited just waited out the Browns, waited until they were forced to cut him as camp neared. He could have become a complete free agent as the Browns had to pay him his 19 million for this year. But when the lowly Carolina Panthers, a team in the offseason, ranked 32nd and dead last in the ESPN power ranking, when those lowly Panthers showed some interest in Baker Mayfield, would you believe he sacrificed a good bit of his salary to get back to being what he's best at, a a walk-on? He walked on and won the starting job at Texas Tech as a freshman. Then he walked on and won the Heisman at Oklahoma. And now he has walked on and won the starting job from the incumbent, Sam Darnold, in Carolina, Has he ever been humbled? He has now regrown that chip on his shoulder until it just might be the size of the stadium in Cleveland that was his house. But in Carolina, no more progressive commercials. They're done, they're over. He'll leave those to Flo and her new stalker, John Hamm. No more number one pick expectations. No, he's just Baker hanging, clinging to dear life in the NFL. No more overinflated ego. No more, I I woke up feeling dangerous today. No, Baker has been on his best behavior. He's been saying and doing all the right things in Carolina. He's back to being a hopeless underdog. And I love it. I love this team's chances. Chances of being a wildcard team. I believe the Carolina Panthers are destined to make the playoffs this year because Baker Mayfield is back to doing what he does best, shocking the world. I believe Baker will lead, operative word, lead the Panthers to a playoff berth. I now believe the Carolina Panthers have a humbled adult at quarterback. Now for maybe a shocking left turn, which I probably should have taken to save myself from what I'm about to tell you about Now for the shocking details of a recent road rage incident in which I became involved right here in Los Angeles, California. I'm still not sure exactly what happened, but here's how I saw it. I was driving home from an area called Brentwood, not far from where LeBron James lives, and from where I occasionally play or practice golf at Brentwood Country Club, I was driving through nice neighborhoods on high traffic streets in five o'clock rush hour traffic. And I came up to a green light on a busy street, a green light without a left turn lane or a left turn signal in the car in front of me as often happens here in LA suddenly put on its brakes and its left turn signal. And I'm like, Ugh, stuck. But I glanced in the mirror and I glanced to my right and I saw nothing and I started to cut around said car in front of me as it awaited the oncoming traffic to clear. And suddenly I sensed that out of nowhere, a, a blur was flashing up on my right and I successfully managed to swerve back into my lane. I did have to brake fairly hard behind that car turning left. I I just did not see that car flying up on my right, which had to be traveling at a very high rate of speed. That driver honked at me as he swerved to avoid me, but our cars did not touch. The other car did not hit the curve or have to swerve up into somebody's yard or up onto the sidewalk. It wasn't like that. It was, I guess you could say close, but there was obviously no damage done to either car. And that driver sped on while I waited the car for the car in front of me to go ahead and turn left. And then I proceeded on thinking nothing about what had just transpired. Ho hum, no big deal. This is LA. If you know LA traffic and LA driving, it is crazy out here. My wife, Ernestine, a native New Yorker, says they're all lunatics. You can't trust anybody at the wheel out here in LA. I respond to my wife, Ernestine, do you remember New York cab drivers? I mean, New York cab drivers are mostly very good drivers, but they're mostly all maniacs in dangerous hurries, liable to try just about anything at any split second, which pretty much describes most LA drivers who are all in dangerous hurries to waze their way through heavy traffic, get to wherever they're going quicker, liable to try just about anything at any split second. <sighs> Seriously, just about every time I drive here in LA, two or three drivers make me break hard or swerve. It's just the law of LA's asphalt jungle used to get upset about it, used to get angry about it, used to get even road ragey about it, but not anymore, it's just the way it is. So I went on about my business, I accelerated back up to, I don't know, 40 miles an hour or so, and I suddenly realized that the driver who had flown past me was slowing down so that I could pull up alongside him, which I did. He was gesturing wildly at me. So I immediately pointed to myself and I mouthed to him, my fault, sorry. Not once, but twice, my fault, sorry. But not only did that not appease him, or calm him down, he, he appeared to get even angrier. He looked to be about, I'm just guessing, 30-ish, well-dressed, driving a nice car. So he sped back up for a moment. Then he slowed back down beside me. I just continued on at 40-ish miles an hour. And are you ready for this? He held up his handgun for me to see. Held it right up in the driver's side window for me to see. Again, this made absolutely no sense to me. So I tried again, pointing to myself and mouthing, no, 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 no. My fault, sorry. Sorry. Friends of mine have told me since that at that point, I should have just immediately turned left, even though obviously that wasn't my route home. But hey, I have my pride. I didn't want to look like I was turning tail and running, even though that's probably what I should have done. In fact, it's almost certainly what I should have done. But you know how I am. I knew I was in the right here, even though I was wrong to have made him swerve. I was right in that I was trying to profusely apologize to him, and he did not understand. Only much later did it finally occur to me, did it finally come clear to me that he was misinterpreting my exaggerated gestures as, you want some of me? Or at least that I was somehow challenging him, which I obviously was not. I was apologizing. He was dangerously misinterpreting to the point he showed me his pistol. What? So I briefly considered calling 911, but I figured it'd take way too long for the police to respond. It would be my word against his word. And obviously, in the very beginning, I was the one in the wrong. So now we're approaching a major intersection with the light red. He's slightly ahead of me in the right lane. And at the last second, and another shock to me, he yanked his car sideways, cutting across my lane and blocking my lane. Obviously, still crazed with road rage. And you ready for this? He gets out of his car and starts walking toward mine. Now, the only saving grace in my view at this moment was he did not have his pistol in his hand. I don't know, maybe it stuck it in his back belt. I have no idea, but I could not see the pistol at this point. So in my younger days, I just might've gotten out of that car, which obviously could have been the single dumbest move I could have ever made. I did not have a weapon other than my golf clubs, my trunk, So I have no idea what exactly I would have tried to do, go John Wick on him, try to disarm him if in fact he was armed, what beat the unholy hell out of him in front of the many motorists who are now looking on if not filming this. What if I accidentally knocked him down and hit his head on the pavement and died? What if he purposely killed me? And then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Is it possible he's in some kind of altered state? Were there drugs and or alcohol involved? I have no idea. Had he just suffered some unspeakable tragedy in his life? Had his wife left him and his girlfriend left him? Was he simply ready to take out his suffering on me? I had no idea and no way to know. So at the last split second, I'm asking myself, where exactly In this is the win for me. I also briefly considered slamming it in reverse and fleeing the scene. But he seemed so enraged to me at that moment that I feared he might jump back in his car, which was pointed now in my direction, and chase me. My car is a flat-out rocket ship. It's almost 800 horsepower. It's made for the track. I like to drive fast, but not in five o'clock traffic, on tight streets with lots of pedestrians, a lot of people out at that hour walking their dogs. That scenario also could have ended very badly. And for me, the larger point is always, which always escapes me, I, I have to keep reminding myself I am a very public figure. You just can't afford to get in any sort of very public confrontations. So at that flashpoint of a point, it's possible that recognizability did save me. All through this confrontation, I was wearing my Vanderbilt baseball cap and sunglasses, which is usually a pretty good disguise for me, especially from a distance in the car. So when he got to be maybe 20 feet away from my car, he said, and I quote, You're being a little bitch. I'm thinking to myself, I'm what? No, I wasn't. But he did stop in his tracks because I took my sunglasses off and all around us people are starting to honk. And it's possible that as I looked him right in the eye with no sunglasses on, just the baseball cap, he recognized me. I don't know. But without another word He just looked at me for a second and at that flash point of a moment I said to him very firmly looking him right in the eye get back in your car. And thank God he did. He sort of heaved a sigh and shrugged and walked back and got in his car. And now the light was green and everybody's honking. It's time to go. And he roars through that busy intersection on down the street. And as I watch, he nearly caused another accident as he tried to cut into the oncoming lane to shoot around the cars ahead of him. Clearly his rage had not subsided. And clinging to my foolish pride, I continued right on down the street, right behind him, at least in his wake, at just a moderate rate of speed, and pretty soon he disappeared into the distance. I consider myself very lucky that that incident didn't go from bad to worst. I did live to tell you about it, obviously, I've replayed it in my head several thousand times and my only revelation has been that he completely misinterpreted my profuse apology as some kind of macho challenge. My wife, Ernestine, wishes I would hire a full-time driver. But to me, it just seems like it would be such a hassle because I want to go exactly when I want to go at very unpredictable times. And besides, I, I like to drive. I I do not consider myself too famous or too successful or too cool to drive my car. Ernstine's always saying to me, you you just don't realize who you are. Maybe I don't, but I'm still going to be me. Damn the consequences. But for me, the moral to this story is it's, it's just getting more and more dangerous out there. At, at every moment, you have to be acutely aware, there are so many very unstable people all around you with guns, all around you with guns. So in the end, my takeaway was, my lesson learned was, the path of least resistance is the only way home. It's time for one of your questions. It's time for me to call upon Marshall from Boston to ask, what is a favorite guilty pleasure of yours that you don't often disclose? I don't disclose any of my guilty pleasures, so let's see, Marshall. No, I don't wanna disclose that, or that, or that. (sighs) But I will try this. How about my guilty pleasure of watching Family Guy? I'm talking about that scathing skewering you can't say that on tv show from seth mcfarland ernestine and i have watched family guy from the very beginning maybe we don't watch it quite as so to speak religiously anymore but we will call upon the classic rerun here and there obviously i don't agree with all the points of view Do I often cringe while I'm watching family? You better believe I do. I mean, I'm a God guy and family guy has made fun of Jesus. But I grin and I bear it because family guy makes fun of everybody and everything. The writing is smart and it's often very funny. And hey, if you give me a talking dog with dating issues, and an intellectual baby capable of building nuclear weapons and using them, I'm in. But please just don't tell anybody I told you this. Speaking of Ernestine and what she and I watch, I've mentioned before that she is head over high heels over Only Murders in the Building. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. I have gone along with with watching Only Murders only because she makes so many viewing sacrifices for me, including preseason NFL games, which she calls pre-games as in, is this another pre-game? Yeah, it's a pre-game, I'm sorry. I gotta watch, maybe just give me a quarter. Can I watch a quarter? Maybe a half. But I must admit, I've come to at least like the the whodunit appeal of Only Murders, which is the brainchild, of course, of Steve Martin's genius. Season one was just a little too cutesy for me. Half the time I wanted to strangle Martin Short, but this season, a new addition to the cast, has, I admit, brought some New York tough guy edge to this show that it was sorely lacking. Guess who? My friend, Michael Rappaport has shockingly become a focal point of this season. You've seen Michael often on Undisputed. I've seen him often on the big screen, starting with his breakout role, thanks to the great Woody Allen as Michael played the meat-headed boxer boyfriend of the hooker played by Mira Cervino in Mighty Aphrodite for which she won the Academy Award. So what was the best scene of season 2 on Only Murders? It was Michael Rapaport back in a boxing ring literally and figuratively sparring with Selena Gomez, AKA Bloody Mabel, on Only Murders. Michael had previously indicated indicated to me via text that he was very proud of that scene in that episode. And here's the thing that you have to understand. That was the first time in all the years I've known Michael Rappaport that I've known him to show even an ounce of ego or pride about his acting. Uh, all the other times I brought up all the other roles this role, that role, how was this, how was that? I'm on fire to know. I, I always get from Michael, yeah, well, it's, it's no big deal. He's a gifted stand up comic. I ask him, yeah, well, it's. It's, it's just no big deal. He has no ego whatsoever as an actor or a stand-up comic. He even played the villain for an entire season of Justified, which is a f- all-time favorite of Ernestine's and mine. Couldn't get a thing of, out of him about playing the villain in Justified, other than, oh, it, it, it was really fun. They were, they were so good to me that they're, they're so easy to work with. What? Tell me more. Give me some dirt. Here's the crazy truth about Michael Rappaport. He'd rather be me or be Shannon, be anyone else in the sports media. Michael, as he often demonstrates on social media, wants to be a sports commentator. He tries to scratch that itch almost as an amateur doing it. It's just like, so many of the rappers I know all wanna be athletes. And so many of the athletes I've known all wanna be rappers and try and fail to be rappers. The bottom line here is, I wanna be Michael Rappaport and he wants to be me. He thinks what he does is no big deal. I'm in awe of him. So congrats, Michael, on yet another career achievement.
1: million businesses worldwide that use indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a seventy five dollar sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Bayless. Just go to indeed.com slash Bayless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Bayless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: So here we win again. Once again, it reared its ugly head. My senior year of high school basketball, I averaged all of 1.4 points per game. And this time, that stat, according to my wife Ernestine, was rampant on the internet. This time it was used to discredit me in the wake of my brawny tweet, of which I spoke last week. As the billions of blind witnesses out there, the LeBron lovers, the LeBron lunatics and apologists, bombarded the internet with, what does Skip Bayless know about high school basketball? He was a water boy. I'm sorry, La Lunatics. I'm not going to let you get away with this on two levels. Number one, I was actually a pretty good high school athlete. And number two, that has exactly nothing to do with my ability to critique LeBron or Bronny's basketball ability. The, the truth is, I, I was actually a little better athlete than many of those now building or coaching teams in the NFL or the NBA or MLB. The truth is, I'm pretty sure I know as much as many of those team builders and coaches do about the sport in which they operate. I'm pretty sure I do. So, because this is my show, I'm gonna commandeer it for just a moment because it's my show and I'm gonna do what I feel like I wanna do right now, much to your chagrin, I'm gonna give you just a quick summary once again of my athletic background. Eighth grade, Taft Junior High School. I was chosen, you can look it up, athlete of the year. This was a two grade school, seventh and eighth grade with about 1,500 total kids, by far the biggest junior high school in the state of Oklahoma at that point. That same summer in a basketball camp run by the great Henry Iba, the U.S. Olympic team coach and then coach at Oklahoma State University. At a camp featuring about 50 kids from all over the state of Texas and Oklahoma, I was chosen the most valuable player I still have the newspaper clipping. I have the article out of the Oklahoma Journal, which begins, looked at it last night. Skip Bayless, Taft Junior High, was awarded the Most Valuable Player Trophy at ceremonies at McGinnis High School Gym Wednesday night. Used a photocopy of said story in a piece I wrote for our Fox website here called Here I Am About My Background in Oklahoma City, including my sports background. Also, that summer at a, a city track meet at Northeast High School in an event that was called at that time the softball throw, where you had to throw a softball for distance and accuracy between two stakes, I broke the city record for what it's worth with a throw of 268 feet. I don't know if you can look it up, but it's out there somewhere because I did it. My sophomore year at Northwest Classen High School, I lettered in baseball as a catcher. Not many sophomores at my high school lettered in any sport because it was by far the biggest high school in the state. And the competition was deep and keen. I started for... Northwest baseball team, both my junior and senior year at shortstop and also at catcher and in American Legion baseball following my senior year, I made the all-region team. For what it's worth, I went to Vanderbilt on a full scholarship for sports writing called the Grant Leroy Scholarship, but the first day I was on campus, the captain of the Vanderbilt baseball team named Steve Estep looked me up and asked me to come out for fall baseball. I thought about it and I declined because I knew school for a public school kid from Oklahoma City going to a private school at Vanderbilt against a lot of private school kids was going to be way too tough for me and I was right. All I know is that Vanderbilt's baseball team won the SEC all four years I was there. I would not have had a prayer. But he did ask me because he had heard of my reputation for playing baseball in Oklahoma City. But back to high school basketball, I played for a legendary coach of probably the most powerful program in the state. He did not like my game. I was run and gun. He was meat and potatoes, slow it down, pounded into the post. When I was a junior, we had two players, who were signed by Kansas State, one the state player of the year, Steve Mitchell, the other, our point guard, John Cheatham. my senior year, Ron Romborg was an All-State player who signed with Houston. Bruce Scott, one of my close friends. All-State signed with the University of Oklahoma. So when we were juniors, we had four Division I players starting for one team. That's pretty much unheard of. That was the competition level. But I was just sure over the summer before my senior year, I would start for the number one team ranked preseason in the state. But my coach, Don Van Poole, transferred in his son Donnie from Southeast High School, and he started Donnie over me, and it devastated and wrecked me. I did wind up starting three games that year, but the last eight or 10 games of the year, I wound up deep in Coach Van Poole's doghouse. I played only three or four minutes down the stretch in those games, and trust me, That will wreck your scoring average because I never shot and never scored. I knew if I shot one time, I was coming out. That team did lose in the state finals, no thanks to me in any way, shape, or form. I got in for the final, like, 10 seconds of that game just because I was a senior. That didn't help my scoring average. So, at least for you billions of blind witnesses out there, at least I know what it feels like to be a decent high school athlete, that's that's all I was. And more important, as I got into this profession in the 1970s, I got to write about Kareem's Los Angeles Lakers. I got to be around Jerry West. 80s, I got to know Magic, I got to know Pat Riley. Along with, when I went to Dallas, Coach Dick Mata, who'd won a championship in Baltimore, I used to run with him, oftentimes on the one mile track at the aerobic center. And did I ever pick his brain? Then I got to learn from Phil Jackson as I covered Michael Jordan in Chicago. Meanwhile, along the NFL trail, I learned my football from Don Shula and Bill Walsh and Tom Landry and Jimmy Johnson. You might say, I got my master's in NBA and NFL. I will put my knowledge of basketball and football up against anybody who ever played either of those sports at any level. I often have done that on live national TV. I often do that every day on live national TV. I mean, Shannon Sharp is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but I dare you to show me where he's made me look foolish in a debate about the NFL any day, any moment, any week, month, or year. I dare you. That does not happen. I am on equal footing with Shannon Sharp. I I relish debating him on the deepest, most complex X and O level about his game of pro football because I know what I'm talking about. Shannon is extremely knowledgeable, extremely knowledgeable. I just don't believe he knows more than I do. So here's the quote unquote, dirty little secret about my business. Biggest misconception that I have constantly encountered is just because somebody played a sport That doesn't mean they understand the sport. In fact, oftentimes the greater the player, the less I've found he can see the force for the trees who actually can play and why they can play because it came naturally. It wasn't that he didn't work hard at his game. He just couldn't really understand anybody else's game because he thought everybody should be about as good as he was. See, Michael Jordan. My all-time favorite NBA player, the obvious GOAT, has proven to be the worst general manager, team builder in the history of professional basketball, obviously in Charlotte. Just because you play doesn't mean that you're extremely knowledgeable about your sport. So many athletes I've known just relied on their God-given talent and they really didn't get what was happening. I know because I've gotten to face them face-to-face on live national TV. And it's not hard for me to expose their blind spots and their gaps in knowledge. Yet dozens, heck hundreds of times in my career, I've heard from athletes so threatened by how much I do know about their games. You don't know because you didn't play. I've heard it constantly. That's the big disqualifier. Heck, a lot of TV executives I've worked around or for over the many years I've been in this business, executives who never played anything more than Gin Rummy, also wrongly believed, if you didn't play, you don't know. Oh yes, I do. And here's the punchline. So many great team builders and coaches in today's games, NFL, NBA, MLB, did not play above the level I played. A few examples, just a few, because there are millions. Zach Kleiman has done a fantastic job building the Memphis Grizzlies. Last year's executive of the year in the NBA did not play high school basketball, didn't even play high school basketball. Taylor Jenkins, great young coach of the Memphis Grizzlies, did play high school basketball, but that's all at a private school I know in Dallas called St. Marks. That's all he played. Does Ja respect him? I think so. Job believe in Zach Kleiman? I'm pretty sure he does. But how does he know he didn't play? He learned. Greatest GMO of the last 20 years in pro basketball, R.C. Buford of my San Antonio Spurs, was a walk on football player at Oklahoma State, a football player. Go figure. How did he learn? He wouldn't work for Larry Brown at Kansas. Getting coffee for the coaches. That's how he learned. Sam Presty, small college basketball player. Brad Stevens, D3 basketball player at best. Lawrence Frank, Clippers team builder. Never played. Team manager for Bobby Knight at Indiana University. Daryl Morey. The genius, Daryl Morey, now with the Sixers, didn't even play high school basketball. I could go on and on. Why don't their players ask them, "How, how do you know you didn't play? Because their players know that they know. Which brings me to the NFL. Howie Roseman has done an extraordinary job building the Philadelphia Eagles. Didn't play any sports in high school. Brandon Bean, Last year's executive of the year, Buffalo Bills, GM, played high school football, okay? Mike McDaniel, the new coach in Miami. I know he played high school football, but he's listed on Yale's roster as a receiver, but I'm pretty sure he didn't get any games. He was just on the team at Yale where they don't give scholarships, okay? Bill Belichick, the great Bill Belichick. He was mostly a D3 lacrosse player at Wesleyan. Did play a little bit of football, but come on. Don't don't get me started on baseball with all of its Sabre matricians running teams. Theo Epstein, what he did for the Cubs, the Red Sox. Played a little bit in high school, but that's all. So the point is for all you blind witnesses out there you can go ahead and you can ridicule me all you want about 1.4. You know what the irony of 1.4 is? The only reason the world knows about it is because the stats were put in the high school yearbook, thanks to me. I was the sports editor of the school paper and yearbook. So it was my responsibility to put those stats in. I guess I could have doctored them. I didn't even think about it because the whole school knew what had happened People yelled at Coach Van Poole from the stands to put me in because they know what had happened. Don was playing his son Donnie. Okay, so I was actually proud to put my 1.4 in the yearbook and now everybody knows about it, which is cool by me. But you blind witnesses, you can go ahead and try to discredit my basketball knowledge all you want. But the painful truth is I do know what I'm talking about. The truth is I will keep telling the truth about everything I see in pro football, pro baseball, and pro basketball, especially as it pertains to LeBron James, much to the chagrin of all you billions of blind witnesses around the world. Another question from you. This one from Julian from Santa Rosa, California. What is a sports conspiracy theory you believe to actually be true? Okay, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'll give you the one that just pops to the top of mind because it's always sitting right at the top of my mind. I believe in this one because I'm pretty sure I originated it. I believe that Bill Belichick, speaking of, sabotage Tom Brady in the Super Bowl that Brady lost to the Eagles 41-33. I don't know if this was conscious or unconscious or subconscious sabotaging. All I know for sure is that Bill Belichick chose not to play Malcolm Butler. Malcolm Butler for the entire Super Bowl. The same Malcolm Butler who had played the most defensive snaps during the season of any Patriot, the most. And suddenly, help me out here, he was benched for the entire game for no apparent reason that I've heard? It's highly mysterious and highly suspicious. Now, there were reports in the couple days after that Malcolm had violated some team rule during Super Bowl week. All those reports completely shot down by Malcolm Butler. Malcolm wound up crying on the sideline because he was so shook up over why he wasn't allowed to play a single down. Meanwhile, Belichick's vaunted defense was giving up 41 points to the Eagles' backup quarterback, Nick Foles. What? And meanwhile, Tom Brady was throwing for a playoff record 505 yards, not just a Super Bowl record, an entire playoff record, 505, while putting up 33 points on a top-five defense. But even that wasn't enough to overcome the completely unexplained doghousing of Malcolm Butler, a former Super Bowl hero, who obviously helped save the Seattle Super Bowl for Tom Brady. Let's see, Malcolm Butler plays cornerback and Nick Foles was throwing a party on Belichick's. I I don't get it, I'll never get it, so, I ask you, how does Bill Belichick get a pass for benching Malcolm Butler? I I ask it in my own head thousands of times because I don't think there's any doubt that Belichick was suffering from increasing jealousy of the credit that Brady was getting at that point. So is it possible to use my late mother's Favorite expression that Belichick was cutting off his own nose despite his face? It's possible. I believe it's very possible. I believe that Tom Brady will go to his grave believing that Bill Belichick cost him that Super Bowl. And I am completely with Tom Brady. And one last question just from you. How about Taj from Birmingham, Alabama? How do you pick which games to talk about on Undisputed during the football season? That's a good question. Give you a quick answer. Our ratings data tells us when in doubt, always do the Cowboy games. In in my life in this business, dating back to years that I used to watch games on Sundays at CBS, the mantra was always, when in doubt, talk about the Dallas Cowboys. Obviously, I just hopelessly love my team, the Dallas Cowboys, but that's not the point. The ratings data says do Cowboys. So objective number one on NFL Mondays is do Dallas. Number two, we've often scored with, speaking of, Tom Brady debates. I believe in him. Shannon doesn't. Number three, Aaron Rodgers has always worked for us, though Shannon has come more around to my position, an anti-Aaron position. Shannon has seen the light. Number four, Baker Mayfield has been a ratings lightning rod for us. And next, we always consider on which other shocking outcomes or trending controversies do we authentically and genuinely disagree. the disagreements get priority because we are a debate show. If we just naturally agree on something, maybe it's not that great. Maybe it doesn't quite make it into the show. But finally, we we always have to consider that one wow performance of the weekend. Even if we do agree on it, it's just so spectacular that we have to somehow grade it with a letter grade or rank it all time because it's it's so amazing, so astonishing, we'll find room for it. And that's how we rank our topics each Monday, even though, trust me on this, six or eight routinely wind up on the cutting room floor. And, and that's even given the fact we're a two and a half hour show. So in conclusion, Speaking of this looming NFL season, the looming holiday called Labor Day is always happy, sad for me. It's always wistful for me. It signals the end of summer. And for me, it signals that the six month long NFL grind is upon me. This year culminating in the Super Bowl, on Fox, in Phoenix, and obviously Undisputed will be there front and center. So the truth is, as I speak, there's this part of me that's dreading this six-month grind with no days off, including holidays. We'll be on Labor Day. We'll be in all the holidays through the fall into the wintertime. But I will tell you this, all of me can't wait for this NFL season. That's it for episode 31. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Remember, please, Undisputed, every weekday, 930 to noon Eastern Time. The Skip Bayless Show, every week.